0: Practice means to perform over and over again in the face of obstacles, some act of vision, of faith, of desire. Practice means inviting the perfection desired. This quote comes from American dancer and choreographer Martha Graham. In their new book, my guests advocate nine practices for the church to help see what it means to be a new humanity in Christ. These practices, like Graham's rehearsals, point to and invite the perfection desired, the future assured. When practiced, they not only revitalize the church, addressing its often malformed social imaginary, they also show the world its destiny and future. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. My name is Liam Miller and this is an exciting episode, for there are not only one, but two guests. And in a shocking turn of events, one of the very first times uh, I was actually in the same room as both of them when we recorded. However, given uh, my relative inexperience of recording in a room uh, rather than through the computer, uh, the sound quality at points is not as great as some other episodes. I still think it comes okay, and my thanks to uh, Adrian Jackson for helping me figure this out, but this is just a forewarning. There are some points where it is a little uh, trickier to hear. My guests are the wonderful Grace Jisun Kim and Graham Joseph Hill. Grace is an Associate Professor of Theology at Earlham School of Religion, She is the author and editor of 16 books, including Embracing the Other, Intersectional Theology, and the Holy Spirit, Chi and the Other. Graham is a research coordinator at Stirling Theological College, part of the University of Divinity. And his books include Global Church, and Salt, Light, and a City, and about five more coming out this year. Uh, He is the director also of the Global Church Project. Together, they have co-authored Healing Our Broken Humanity, Practices for Revitalizing the Church and Renewing the World. It's an important work, and I'm excited to chat with them about it today. Please welcome Grace and Graham to Love, Rinse, Repeat.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to a very rare, in the flesh, everyone in one room episode of Love Rinse Repeat. I am here with Grace Sun, Kim and Graham Hill talking about their book, Healing Our Broken Humanity, which is out now and you can get. Grace and Graham, welcome. Thank you. Well,
2: thank you so much for having me. It's, it's incredible I'm in the
1: same room with you and you. Yes. Well, I mean, we've, we've obviously, uh, I've interviewed both in the past, um, Grace a few more times. Uh, but Yes. This is not only, you know, you not only uh, are now in the room with Graham, but you didn't even write the book in yeah, the room. With I know, Graham. I did it? It was across the
2: ocean.
3: So
2: it's incredible that we were able to finish that.
1: Yes, yes and it, it doesn't read, uh, it reads very cohesive. Oh. It doesn't, you don't know, notice the geographical distance. So. Thank you, thank
3: you. That's what we were aiming for. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and so you're in Australia doing a little bit of a tour and, and, and launching the book. How have you found your, your time here in Australia?
3: I love Australia.
2: I can't think that. I didn't know how beautiful it was going to be, because living in the States, all I know is that Sydney Opera House, that's it, so I didn't realize how beautiful, so I, I spent a few days in Adelaide, um, did a talk there, and, and I preached. Adelaide is so beautiful, and then I come here, and Sydney is so beautiful. Today, um, Graham showed me the opera house, that was like mm. a dream of mine to see, so I feel very fulfilled, and see a bit of the downtown, and just driving around, everything is so Trees. I've never seen so many different
1: types of trees here in Australia, so I just
2: love it here. That's excellent.
1: So I feel kind of sad that it took me this long to
3: get
1: here. <laughs> it is. We are sad too. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a second, I want to get into a bit of you know, what it was like, or what led you to write the book together and what it was like, but Grace, I know you've now co-written several books with, with different people. So. Uh, I guess, who's the best person you've written a book with and where does Graham rank on that list? (laughs) I
4: think
2: there is four people, and let me think. Yeah, be very careful about this. I already
4: know (laughs) know the right (laughs) answer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The real truth is Graham was the easiest. It was very natural. We weren't even in the same... um, together. But actually, you and Susan were very close. you go got to be careful
4: of uh, that ranking couple. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. Yeah. But
2: Susan was very easy. To we were on the same wavelength, and I think Graham, it was just, we the same wavelength. And
3: I think Graham,
2: Susan and I are both in the U.S. So, you know, we kind of know each other's context. But, you know, I didn't really know his in context. So, um, it was so interesting in the writing process because I learned so much. So, when Graham wrote in all the Australian history and some of the context, and just his perspective as a white male, it was very, very um, good. So, I think the writing together was just excellent. So, uh,
3: yeah, it's hard to compare, but Susan and and
2: Graham would be up there. So, it was very fun. uh, We want to do more. I'll do
3: more. (laughs) Well, writing
2: with
4: Uh, others can be quite difficult, of course, because writing is a very personal process. Um, but I was thinking about this last night because somebody asked us last night what was the experience like and I think one of the reasons why us writing together works is because we tend to, I think, defer to each other. You know, we tend to uh, treat each other with a lot of respect and yeah. to pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is saying in each other's voices and that makes the writing process work.
2: Yeah, okay. because yeah it's like, exactly, because I was trying to figure it out too, but... Um, so that I'm not an expert in everything and Graham's not an expert, but together are both different expertise, mm-hmm. where we're able then to complement and contribute. So that's why it was so, it was very easy and we kind of relied on each other from the different areas. Mm-hmm. So it was a very good writing process. It was a quick writing process. Graham's actually a very fast writer. So he has actually three books coming out right <laughs> 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 which is excellent. So, now um, he's writing really fast, so I'm trying to catch
4: up with it. So <laughs> so. <laughs> <so. laughs> I'll be writing the rest of my life to catch up. <laughs> no, <laughs>
3: not <really> not, <laughs> you know, so
2: I'm very excited that Graham just keeps writing. So I think that's it was a good uh, partnership, which is very important
3: for me. Mm-hmm.
2: That doesn't happen in many cases. And I know some people start, you know, with grand um you know, ideas of it's going to be a great book. And a lot of people don't finish it mm-hmm. because it's, it's a very difficult process. Yeah. But ours was very smooth, even from the beginning to the end. I thought it worked well. And, you know, you came to our launch yesterday, mm-hmm. and I thought it just went well. And we were actually in the same group together and be able to talk and share.
1: Mm-hmm. we should just comment because one of your other co-authors is in the room and didn't warrant a mention, no matter how much she was uh, gesturing to herself as the best, but uh, uh, your the daughter's here, who, daughter's you, who you wrote.
2: Uh, so she's traveling with Elizabeth, so a bit. Yeah, so we've a book by their daughters Yeah. That was fun too. <laughs> you know, it's you know, a different kind.
3: Yes, yeah. No. <laughs> no, no, That is
1: absolutely uh, fair. That creates intention. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, right, maybe we can, you know, reconciliation is part yeah. of what we're talking about. <laughs>
3: um,
1: well, returning to the book, uh, you know, one of the big focuses of the book is it's on practice. It's in the subtitle right there. Um, and each chapter ends with, you know, some very uh, you know, detailed practices for, especially if you're reading this in a small group that you can engage in. And some practices might take, you know, one meeting, some are kind of over eight weeks or, or, or longer. What led you to have this very, this focus on practices and, and to really try to spell that out? That if a if a group were reading this book and doing absolutely everything, you know, it's going to take time. It's going to be rather transformative. So what kind of led to that decision?
2: Um, as a theologian, for me, it's always a struggle of, is it just going to be this head knowledge that we're doing, and for theology for the last 2,000 years, much of it has been a philosophical idea. So when we were kind of writing this, we thought, it means, theology needs to lead to some action. So um, I think you just came up with the of pend- And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I just we just went along. And you know, I've spoken, so you've spoken to churches here, I've spoken to churches in the US, and some of them are using it in their churches as a study group, and a lot of positive responses. So I'm very happy because there are a lot of folks out there kind of maybe dealing so not not to the Mm -hmm. extent that we are, but it doesn't lead to the practical aspect. And I think Graham's idea that we need to kind of add these practical things, which made it actually harder to write, because we have to really think about it. It's not just all oh, this grand idea, but how are you going to implement it and allow the people as either individuals or as churches or study groups, how are they going to actually uh, live this out and fill out uh, what we're actually talking about in each of the
4: chapters and, and one of the things that we tried to do is make sure that all the practices were group practices as well. Um, because initially when we were thinking about this, we thought about at the end of every chapter having, here are some things that you can do to put this idea into practice. But then we thought, you know, it would be good to do it as group practices because a lot of transformation happens, not individually, of course, but happens in a a group context. People serving together, um, seeking to be a reconciling, healing, loving community, And within that community we are transformed. I think that was really helpful. I was thinking about, so with my role in the church now, you know, we're looking
1: into new forms of church, potential church plants, things like this. And, you know, oftentimes if a church is looking to plant, there's that kind of classic first year if you meet in the home and do some Bible studies and, and, and talk. And I was thinking, something like this, I mean, how that would shape a community finding a, a new identity in a new area. Oh, yeah. I hope that those uh,
2: house churches, you know, the new plant churches will be able to use either the whole book or part of it. That's our idea because, um, you know, both our grandma and I are so rooted in the church. You know, we still preach and we do activities in the church. We're not separate from the church. So we always kind of kept that in our mind. Um, we, we certainly want seminaries and students to read it, but also the practical aspect, how can you kind of live this out mm-hmm. practically so that we're not just talking about it like a head knowledge thing, but it is really something that we want mm-hmm. people to live in their hearts and hands and feet.
4: And one of the things we try to suggest too is that it's important to engage the practices with a diverse community. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to push back against things like you know, inhospitality or colonialism, mm-hmm. Violence or sexism or racism, you're not really going to be able to do that alone, firstly, so that's why you need a group. But secondly, you're not going to do it well if you're doing it with people who are just like you. So it's much better, we, we suggest, to be trying to do these practices in diverse communities where engaging in something together is transformative and models and stimulates. Um, the breaking down of the of the walls and the barriers and the antagonisms, and discovers a new what to be a new human um, humanity
2: and community. Mm-hmm. So even just us two, from different cultures, different gender, different denominational background, kind of that kind of model that you know. We need each other, we need diversity, even as co-authors and the different cultures that we are able to bring in, the Australian, American, the Asian culture. That kind of we, we always kept that in the back of our mind as we're reading, uh, as we're writing, that we want to speak to diverse communities and we want the churches to be not just a monocultural uh, institution or uh, a worship, a house of worship, but it becomes an intercultural and very diverse group. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's Sydney. I never expected it to be this diverse. I didn't expect to eat Asian food most of the (laughs) time here. Like that just speaks volumes of this world is shrinking, and people from around the world are migrating and moving. Even it might be temporary, maybe permanent. So we have to adapt and, and be able to live with each other Mm -hmm. and the diversity just adds richness to how we worship, how we engage in hospitality and community and how we just live out our Christian faith Mm -hmm. because that's what the book is trying to do. It's not just for anybody, it's for those of us who are struggling to live out our faith in this broken society and our broken churches. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, You were saying about like learning from each other and, and how that model was there can you think of a particular moment when you know you opened up the email with uh, "Oh, you know, Grace has sent through some new pages" or "Ray has sent through a few dozen pages"? Um, however, and, and you had a moment, like "Oh, like you know, wow, I hadn't thought of that" or "I hadn't, you know, seen that connection" or, or you know something that was you know really a, one of those "aha" There were
3: many for me. So he may not have
2: any, but <laughs> we'll,
1: we'll <laughs> give Graham <laughs> a second to think
3: about it. <laughs> I just.
2: There are parts when Grant was singing, particularly as doing cocktails, and then there was a part where, um, you know, one of our chapters is about relinquishing power, and he began, uh, you know, identifying himself as a man of privilege, as white privilege, and for me, that's hard for someone to do, but Grant was so free to do that, and that you know, I don't know if I ever said because we're just so busy just writing it. But that meant a lot to me, and it and it just shows his character and how he was willing to write with an Asian American woman. Not many people want to do that, so it just showed that. So there were many moments like that. When, you know, that relinquishing power and he begins with his story of you necessitating know, himself and how he needs to relinquish power and, and give more space to uh, people of color and even women of color. That speaks volumes, so that was very moving and touching for me. You know, usually that's a, when I'm asleep and wake up with everything. So that was fun and yeah. I hope when people read the book, they will see the humanity of both Graham and I you know, we're not this perfect or, we're, you know, there's all these flaws in all of us, but together we work, you know, to build, build each other up and, and bring some healing into the
4: humanity. Yeah, very similar experience. And when we were, were writing laments, for instance, mm-hmm. um, um, I remember first reading the lament um, that Grace wrote for Sarah Blade. Um Just getting a sense of... Um, Uh, Grace's experience of racism and sexism and oppression in the United States um, through the medium of a lament Mm -hmm. was very moving for me. So, yeah, those kinds of experiences. Uh, It sounds like we had similar uh, sort of a experiences as each of us was sharing some of our own story and yeah. our own experiences, yeah. mm.
2: so there are uh, stories of that I'm growing up, mm-hmm. so I, I hope the readers will appreciate. Um, we kind of opened ourselves. Now. Mm-hmm. You know, when we after you know, write a book, the book has a life of its own, and so maybe some of our, the intentions that we have may not come through, or something that we kind of wrote a little bit, people aren't touched. So as people read and as they I, as I engage, I hope they will appreciate the openness, mm-hmm. you know, we talking about his childhood and me talking about our childhood and where we have come from and, and which brought us to this stage in mm-hmm. our life and what we want and our hopes, our churches and communities, and people of faith. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I was thinking about the, the story you tell of your childhood, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in, poor and, and and you know family having struggled through you know hardship through the war and, and the aftermath of that but how you kind of drew that out to be that yes you had struggled with this but then you still had the privilege of being white in Australia and that afforded you opportunities to get a particular kind of education um, it meant pension for the um, your, uh, grandparents yeah. who have been soldiers like all these things. so that you know you're bringing that into the light of you know helping people to see the kind of the privilege and and the way um, racism is a very structural thing, mm. uh, and I was thinking about with this book as part of what you 're talking about is this like you know lament and' then the practice of of repentance and I think what you know what 's been shown is often that one of the big issues we face when we're trying to broach those conversations is um, getting beyond just an individualized view of, of sin getting beyond just an individualized view of um, kind of responsibility for overcoming the ills of the world uh, so I was kind of curious about your own journey to kind of see the, the bigger picture of, of you know racism on this of structural scene and and then thus a, a more collective idea of, of repentance and mm-hmm. perhaps you could talk a little about yeah. that because I think often we're in churches thinking how can I you know it's a you know a near Australia day or near some kind of, and I got to preach about this but I know that these six people are going to come and talk to me afterwards about how yeah. I have no reason to be mm. sorry anymore. Like mm. um and Grace, feel we'll free to jump in any any observations as yeah. well, but I was just thinking about how you journeyed in that way.
4: Yeah, so I think well, I remember the first time being in a class when a lecturer spoke about structural sin and structural racism and being surprised because I, I, it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone talk about it in theological terms. Mm. And I remember the first time I heard someone talking about principalities and powers and talking, I always imagined those as being, you know, sort of disembodied evil forces and then somebody started talking about them being actually um, embodied in the systems and structures and processes of the world. I do remember that by But I think the journey towards appreciating systemic Um, sin and racism and how power works was a more personal journey than that though and I think it was something like it's always hard to think back as you reflect on your own experience how accurate your own reflection is but I think it was something like growing up in a poorer part of Sydney Um, you know I was the first person in my family to finish school, finish high school Um, and I remember when I finished high school uh, I was treated like I was a Rhodes Scholar or something, you know. I was <laughs> <Don't laughs> just finishing high school. You know? um, and so <laughs> I, I was kind of, this was the sort of environment that I moved in. Um, just, just labourers and um, bricklayers, truck drivers, working class people who didn't particularly value or understand education um, and who struggled financially. A lot of violence, a lot of addiction, that kind of thing. And... Um, But as I was growing up, I'd always thought about those things sort of individualistically, like the family next door, uh, the father's an uh, alcoholic and he's violent. And I'd always thought about these things individualistically. But I remember when I was in my um, sort of early 20s, first going to theological college in a different part of Sydney, a wealthier part of Sydney, where most of my peers had a private school, Uh, wealthy middle class uh, educational background I suddenly realised they were very different than me and very different than the people I'd grown up with and at first that took me by surprise I couldn't understand why they all look like me but they don't talk like me they don't think like me they don't see the world the way I see the world and slowly it dawned on me that everyone where I'd grown up in Everyone in the area that I've grown up in had all grown up with a similar kind of disadvantage and um, sense of hopelessness and and violence and discouragement and all this kind of stuff seemed very different in the world that my peers at Theological College, many of them had grown up in. That was my first awareness that maybe this isn't an individual thing, maybe this is a systemic thing. Um, And I was becoming aware of class how class works. As that realisation dawned, then I began to think about, oh, hold on, when I think about my childhood, there were groups that I was growing up with that were way more disadvantaged than me. And they weren't individuals either, they were groups, like um, Aboriginal peoples um, or certain immigrant peoples. Or then I suddenly remembered to my horror a, a couple of Korean families who had moved into our area and had suffered terribly over those years. And then, then I began to think about, so there's this systemic disadvantage in the, amongst the community that I have grown up in, in terms of its class and all that kind of thing. But then there were groups that were even more systemically disadvantaged. And this is a structural evil. This is not about necessarily about individuals. So the dawning was more a personal journey of realisation as I was moving into adulthood. Um, I think I tell the story in that kind of way. Yeah. And then realising suddenly as I began to think about that, not only think about the oh, all of my story isn't is not disadvantaged. some of it's actually about privilege in comparison with others. And then also realising that with, kind of with horror at the kind of racisms and uh, really unhealthy attitudes I'd, I had adopted from my own group mm. towards those who lived in my own street, you know, who were of a different, um, different racial background. And then, again, thinking more and more about, hold on, it wasn't just my family that felt like this. It was, this is a systemic thing. Mm. So starting, it was more of a personal yeah. journey, I think. Mm. That's right. Thank you.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: One of the phrases you use uh, kind of early in the book and kind of runs through it a bit is the idea of a Christian social imagination. Uh, So I just wanted to kind of get where did this kind of term emerge from and what was your uh, hope in kind of employing it? How do you find it helpful in in beginning to think about these big issues uh, and thinking about them in, in terms of this or under maybe this umbrella of this Christian social imagination?
3: You guys.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, the phrase first jumped out of being called my imagination, theological imagination from uh, Willie, Willie James Jennings' book. Yeah. Um, Who wrote the foreword? Mm. Who the foreword, yeah. yeah. And for me, Grace may talk about this differently, but for me, reading Jennings and thinking a lot about um, what actually shapes Christian, the Christian theological and social imagination. Jennings deals with this so articulately, mm-hmm. um, uh, in terms of our sense of identity and what we, what we attach our theological, our social imagination to. And, and realize that for many of us, actually, our social imagination is attached to things like our race, our gender, our class, our theological brand, mm-hmm. a lot of things which can be very dysfunctional and um, really broken and w- not only wounded, a wounded social imagination, but wounded to, towards others. And then beginning to think more about, well, as Jennings says very well, where should our social imagination be located if it's not located in some of those things um, exclusively? And then beginning to shape and trying to think about our social imagination is shaped around diversity, inclusion, the new creation, the new humanity, the one new people who are in fellowship and in communion in our difference Mm -hmm. and in our oneness. Mm -hmm. Um, We're we're very different and that's our gift to each other, but we're also one new people together. So thank you. Yeah, so to add
2: just a bit more, I think for me, it's always, I like the word imagination. I think in the theological imagination, um, you know, we are creatures created by God. And I think part of us as creatures created by God is to uh, is this creativeness that we have. And the the reimagination for me is very important because as an Asian American woman, everything, every theological thing that I've been taught. Um, either in the church or in the school, have been what white old men have written and taught me. So, the social vocation is important, the identity that you mentioned, Willie really Jennings, the race and ethnicity, because I always teach, you know, theology is biography and biography is theology, so we have to understand ourselves, understand our experiences, and so, you know, Graham reflects on his experiences, I reflect on mine, not just the childhood, but even later on in life, we're reflecting. So, you know, social imagination, the theological imagination needs to happen because I can't, um, I'm not saying all the things that have been written in the past, or not, but they don't necessarily speak to today's context. And to me, as a woman of color, it doesn't speak. So then I say, because it doesn't speak, there's no other answer? No, then we have to kind of dig in and reimagine. God has given us all creativity. He has given us all brains right to think. And since God is infinite and we're finite, I can't say that one person's voice is the only way. It can't happen, and it can't be. So, well, because why do we all exist? Why are there Asians and Africans and South Americans? Why do we exist? We, we exist. We need to co- coexist together. We need to live with each other. But there's a lot that each group of people, each uh, different communities can add to the voice that have existed in the last 2,000 years of white Euro all male community. So, you know, I think, you know, just to add on, this is very, very important. I hope people, um, as they're reading the book and examining their own lives, trying to ask themselves, how, where did I encounter God? Or how do I encounter God? Is my life experience not that important? Of course it is. So reflecting, you know, that's a part of the theological reflection. Reflecting on one's personal, Journey and life, and you as someone living in Sydney, you live in Australia, me living in the US. You know, God, the Spirit of God is all over the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just in the USA, as what Americans would like to think, but it's it's all over. It's with the Indigenous people here, the Aboriginals here in, in Australia. So we have to kind of open our hearts and our minds and kind of really. Try to reimagine and rethink everything that has been taught to us mm-hmm. uh, because we can't just take it for granted mm-hmm. and just take every other people's answer and say
1: that's my answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's very helpful, and uh, it kind of gets into there was another just a little bit further on in the book. I read the passage unity and diversity, uh, and my uniting church heart was warm, which I oh. think that's basically a credo in our it's basically a creed in our church, but. Um, you know, it's often one of these ones, a uh, phrase can kind of get thrown around, uh, and both those words can get kind of thrown around a bit in not always the most thoughtful or uh, grounded way. So, uh, how, how do you think of these kind of two together this you know, unity and diversity, and, and, and your attempt in the book to kind of give it a, a very strong theological uh, foundation? Mm.
3: Well, I think there is unity Mm and diversity.
2: I mean, just because you're diverse doesn't mean you're all kind of separate people. I think there's that diversity which adds richness to the church, Mm -hmm. but we're still one in the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. So even though Graham is a white male, and you're a white male, and I'm an Asian woman, Asian-American woman, even in the diversity that exists in the churches and communities, there's still that oneness because it's Christ that brings us together. If Christ didn't bring us together, then we're all so kind of spiritual, kind of seekers going on their own path. But all of us, you know, the three of us sitting here, and those in the church, even though we're diverse and we want to celebrate the diversity because the diversity adds richness, we're still one in the body of
3: Christ. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. yeah, and... Um... You know, the the idea that we are this, you know, rich tapestry of um, uh, racial, gender, class, educational and other backgrounds. So it's a rich tapestry and we we pay attention to each other, to the Holy Spirit of each other. Um, uh, At the same time, I think unity, unity and diversity is worked out with a with a clear commitment to the to the other, um, but a willingness to shape each other sometimes in ways that are very uncomfortable. But we can't I think sometimes we sort of imagine unity and diversity means we're all different, we're just gonna hold hands together and we're everything's
3: (laughs) (laughs) But
4: actually sometimes unity and diversity is very uncomfortable, like you you're really rubbing against each other. And the kind of the conflicts, the difference, the, the sometimes the, the misunderstanding, the all of that is if you're, if you're going to, if you really love each other and you're committed to each other and you work with it, all of that makes you a much more uh, diverse and unified people. Mm. Um, I So we, we're aiming for the harmony of the new creation and the eschaton. <laughs> but we to get there, we're going to go through a lot of conflict and, and struggle. And if we love each other, we see that as part of, um, you know, when you're in a relationship with someone, if you're in a relationship with someone and there isn't that happening, you think this is a real relationship or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and when that kind of thing is happening, And if you're willing to work on it, the relationship becomes something much, much richer. And I think that's, you know, diversity. I would just say one other quick thing. I think diversity has become a very popular word in um, contemporary Western culture. I think the idea has been a bit hijacked by pragmatism, by uh, pragmatic ideals. Christians don't pursue diversity for diversity's sake. Um, Our goal is not diversity for diversity. Our goal is diversity, uh, to be God's new people. Uh, it's a, there's, this, there's this deep and rich theological commitment that comes out of the vision and the ethics of Christ um, that shapes our commitment to each other and to diversity. Mm-hmm.
1: I think there's something interesting in the, the sense of both groups feeling that tension and struggle, because I think sometimes, uh, you know, in a way often... You know, churches which are trying to become multicultural, cross-cultural, um, it's often there's one dominant group that's doing okay, um, yeah. and 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 the the uncomfortableness is all kind of put onto the yeah. it's a smaller group. But then that, that you know, there has to be this kind of shared yeah. um,
2: wrestling and yeah. Yeah, struggle. And every time there's new birth, you know, there is a struggle. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think some people who become Christians, they think it's going to be such an easy, rosy kind of life, but you know, Christ didn't. You know, Christ kind of Mm challenged, you know, when we look at his life, he challenges people, um, you know, are you going to continue to do that to women, or to the Samaritan, or to the lepers, you know, so he actually brought a lot of uncomfortableness, Mm -hmm. so, you know, reading the book, people may feel uncomfortable you know, what do you mean we have to do the lamenting, or the forgiveness, or the repentance? <laughs> because in certain communities, they feel they've done nothing wrong. You know, we, didn't, we weren't racist, or we, we were part of the genocide. That was so long ago. So they feel there's no need for reconciliation, there's no need for asking for, or repenting, or, or asking for forgiveness. So the book may, challenge people and make them uncomfortable but I hope that people will continue to read it and see how it may um, widen their their logical understanding that it will help them in their relationships with people in the church and in the community and ultimately that it will work towards healing Mm. so much brokenness in our society.
3: Mm. Yeah, earlier, Graham,
1: you were talking about what it was like to read the lament that Grace wrote. But I was wondering, so as part of the book, you kind of talk about lament and then um, yeah, demonstrate what it might be to write a lament uh, patterned on, on a biblical model of, of lamentations. Um, what was it like writing these laments, having to sit down and and, and choose language and, and and try to get it from the heart but following this pattern, what was that kind
2: of like? It was, it wasn't easy. I think it's difficult because part of the moment you're recognizing you're crying out to God because of the pain that uh, you're experiencing or your community is experiencing. So my example was the Sandra Bland and that was a big example in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and it happened a while ago but she's actually back in the news because now they have found clips of when she got arrested, that was hidden before. Mm-hmm. A lot of people thought she was okay with the arrest, but she wasn't. So this uh, crying out to God on some of the injustices that are happening. So it, it's not easy because I'm coming from that perspective of how why is this happening to, to women of color but it's more specifically to black women, but it is happening, and it's happening not just to the black women, you know, black men are being shot and they're being killed. So there's a lot of things to lament about, and you know, you have to open up your hearts and cry out to God. So that was a difficult thing, but I, so you know, not everything in the book is easy, but I'm hoping that the readers recognize
4: it wasn't easy for us, mm. and it's not easy for the church, but it's something that we need to do. Yep. Yeah. Mm. So the lament that I wrote um, for Australia included um, some lament about some of our history of um, colonization, um, the treatment of Aboriginal peoples, and um, some of that I wrote with um, some Aboriginal um, friends, Um, who preferred at the time not to put their name to it but wanted to help me think about how I craft it, that wasn't always comfortable because they helped me understand some of our history from their own experience in ways that I hadn't seen before. And that you know, that kind of process is not always comfortable, but if you're willing to sit with it and listen to the Holy Spirit, it can be life-changing. And then the lament, then I shared the lament with some of... um, My peers who reacted quite badly to it, actually, in terms of um, them feeling like, um, "Well, you're acting like all Australians should take responsibility for these things," and that was many generations ago. So, I got a very different reaction from some of my peers. And so, for me, it was a growing, very growing experience in terms of those that interaction with my Aboriginal friends and then with my. Why I want Australia be as well, yeah. mm-hmm.
2: but that happens in the states too when we're talking mm-hmm. about reconciliation. You know, that happened so long ago or the slavery issue. You know why? Why do we have to uh, do anything now that was so much in the past? But you see, if we don't recognize the past and understand the past, it's gonna, it's gonna happen again. So I think that lamenting, even though it was many generations ago, we're mm-hmm. still kind of living off what had happened. To the Aboriginals and the Native Americans and the African Americans and so
4: on. So I think yeah, people do need to, you know, love that. And I think uh, Grace is discovering this too that there's a there's a fresh desire, often amongst young adults, but not only young adults, to actually learn the art of movement it. mm. because it's something that we we've, we've lost in and our sure. society. Aren't doing, yeah, yeah.
2: and
4: and Emmanuel Cotongoli, you know, the um, African theologian, says that unless we can learn the art of lament, there is no healing and reconciliation. Yeah. So I think there is a fresh desire for, yeah. to learn this art and see it as a part of a way of broadening our, our spiritual life together yeah. and mm. our prayer, a repertoire in terms of prayer.
2: And mm. when I speak to people who read the book and are speaking to churches, that's one thing that people are kind of, oh, yeah. we should do this. So I'm hoping that the readers mm-hmm. will say, maybe, you know, it doesn't sound like I want to do this, but hopefully that they'll do it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the appendix after the chapters and exercises so that people will engage. And um, if people are doing it, we would love to hear from you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mm-hmm.
1: yeah. result. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was going to say that at the end. People <laughs> should make yes, sure they do share if they're on the table. I was just thinking about, so we're talking about this idea of, of encouraging yeah, this, this you know, kind of um, ownership of, of what happened and, and the way that people still uh, profit from it today and, and, and this conflict is often very much at the heart of our society. Now, these practices are very much about, you know, the church mm-hmm. doing them. To what extent or does the church have a responsibility to help, you know, kind of – Bring these practices beyond the church. Like to what extent are these, you know, these, um, you know, encouraging some level of lament or, or practices of justice, uh, you know, to those who are not part of the church? And how do you see that as a, is that like the next, you know, a step beyond this? Um, is that just something that we witness to, and if people, you know, inquire, we, you know, fold them in what we're doing? Do we call on? governments and other organizations that do it. How do you see that relationship as it? because the book is very much about you exactly transforming the churches, which you know, makes sense. Yeah. But, but yeah, that next step. I think you
2: know, the whole society should be transformed. So if you need to engage in politics, yes, we need to speak out to politicians and change laws. And you know, when we think about our laws really bad, have they been oppressed? If I look at the American context, in 1882, there was a Chinese Exclusion Act. So, um, you know, recently under President Trump, we think that we did the Muslim
3: ban, and that's the first time that we kind of banned a certain group of people from coming,
2: but it, it happened, it was a real law. The Muslim ban is a temporary thing, but there was a real law that the Congress had passed in the United States in 1882 to prevent Mm-hmm. No more Chinese from coming because everybody was afraid of the Chinese, you know, they got to take their jobs, the yellow fever, everybody, there was some fear. About. So that was supposed to be in place only 10 years, but it got extended, it got extended, it went to about 19.4. 43 or 44, that's a long time. for so the Chinese had to carry papers around those who were already here, that they were actually kind the of residents, they couldn't vote, they couldn't own anything. It was a very, very difficult time. But yes, yeah, so you see injustices. Also, if you look at American history, um, uh, um, they did the Japanese internment. That was a law that was put in place to get around that all the time. So when you see the injustices, we need to speak up. So it's not just within the church We got to speak up in the society. You can't allow people to lock people up in prison just because of their ethnicity. Because these Japanese have been distinct in, in, in for generations. Mm-hmm. They were the Japanese Americans, but still the fear of us are we do this. So I think that the churches and, and leaders need to speak up so that we don't do these forms
3: of
4: injustices in the wider society. Yeah, many of the issues in society are only going to be effectively addressed when Christians are working with other groups in collaboration with other groups. So, we take an Australian example, the the asylum seekers and refugees. Christians and churches have an important role to play. We've seen in our last election that governments actually are very interested in the Christian vote. But I think even more powerfully um, some of these issues can be addressed effectively when you've got Christians and Hindus and Muslims Mm. and Buddhists and atheists and NGOs and churches working collaboratively towards, um, to address injustices and towards solutions. And if I take it down to like even um, down to the next level, I think about neighbourhoods.
3: Mm.
4: You know, in my particular neighbourhood, if I want life and transformation, it can't just be the churches in my neighbourhood. They can't do that alone. They've got an important role to play, but they've got to work with neighbourhood organisations, with, with all the groups that are working in their suburban neighbourhood, working collaboratively to bring... ..to make it a, a place where people want to live and find hope and their concrete needs are addressed. I can't see how you can do any of that without the church... Mm-hmm working well with other groups
1: and intentionally. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, one of your chapters uh, looks at hospitality, and you write that hospitality involves our relationship to our home, to the earth, and to a local place. You yeah. are the there. Uh, how we treat people... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who wrote that one? <laughs> um, uh, How we treat people needs to be extended to all creation. Do you want to just maybe expand a little on uh, what this implies, and perhaps share if you have any ideas that come to mind of where you've seen this already in practice?
2: Yeah. So, you know, hospitality is welcoming, Mm. and especially those who are strangers welcoming into your home or into your community. Um, I see this just on a regular basis. If you look at if you ever attend a Korean church, so uh, not too. With the Korean churches here, the immigrant churches here in the U.S., I mean, in, in, in Australia, but in the U.S. And, and in Canada, most Korean churches, after worship is a meal, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, it's hard to hate someone when you're breaking <laughs> bread with
3: them or breaking rice in our situation. <laughs>
2: you know, there's something that happens, so when I think about the Lord, you know, Christ, you know, the last time we kind of broke bread and he shared it. What a holy moment. So, you know, Graham spent his sabbatical in Korea. I'm sure people always ask you, how you eat? Yeah, let's go eat. Yeah, so in, in Korea, one of the... There's a lot of things that people say to one another, but that's one of the ways of reading. Can you eat? And if you haven't, and I have, with the sabbatical, let's go eat. Eating is very important because there's something that happens. So that's all kind of the hospitality. How can we kind of break bread together, either the church or the home? How do you welcome them? Because that's, you know, I think our society is so individualistic that we are very lonely people. And the loneliness people are looking for a community. People want to belong somewhere or feel welcomed. And so, um, churches need to be a place like that. But you know, so many people come to church and they experience so much hatred, or so you know, they're you know all these certain people that come to church. You're you know, there's so much pain associated. We need to kind of break that cycle, and it should be a place where people feel belong, where they feel loved, and that happens with hospitality.
4: Yeah. And when I try to, I try to think about it in terms of its sort of implications for us as a family. So. Um, How do we build a home that is a warm, welcoming place um, where we invite people in, we open up our home for for meals and um, to be a place of love and acceptance and inclusion and build a family that that actually models that spirit? Then I think about, because we don't have an apartment, um, my family doesn't live in an apartment, but we have gardens. So I think about how do I nurture my garden as as an act of hospitality to the earth? Um, with flowers and trees. I think about the birds and the animals and I, I think about what I'm doing in the garden on a, on a Saturday morning is actually extending hospitality to the animals and to the earth. And then as so I'm home, my garden, I think about my neighbourhood. How, how do I make this neighbourhood place of warmth and hospitality and welcome and inclusion? So I'm sort of thinking in those just in my local, mm. my local sphere, on a very practical note, one of the things that our family has done from time to time is we look around and we see who are the families that are moving into our neighbourhood. And when a family moves into our neighbourhood, the girls and I we put together a you know a basket full of food and we with some flowers and chocolates and we turn up at the door and we say we just want to welcome you mm. and say we well, we're glad you're here. And what we didn't anticipate, but I'm glad we've been doing it, is that. We'd end up eating the cuisine from all over the world because mm-hmm. you turn up, and you welcome somebody, and then for years later, you get all these like
3: <laughs> Chinese
4: dishes, Korean dishes, <laughs> Indian dishes. <laughs> we spread that way, it's, uh, Yeah, that's
3: yeah, right. Yeah, that's I what
2: we've been, been doing in hospitality all the time. With mm-hmm. love, erasing and welcoming, and opening doors, mm-hmm. and then once you do that, it just comes back. So. You know, and as it spread, that's what we want this world to be. We Mm don't want it to be a place of fear and hatred. We want it to be a place where you can experience God's love. Mm -hmm. And so hospitality is kind of in. How do we kind of live out that gospel? Mm -hmm. Mm love?
3: Mm, I think it, uh,
2: I'll be
3: No, that sounds good. You know, these these <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's
1: a sense I, I was always saying if, um, you've got to not only be ready to give, but also then you know, to receive that oh, hospitality yeah. of and the, relinquish the power of you know, kind of coming to in this.
4: Yeah, holding the space. Oh, yes, you know. Yeah, that's a good point actually because hospitality is not a one way street, mm. um, and you're probably not genuinely being hospitable. If you're not able to receive hospitality. Mm. It's a good thing to remember. Um, There's something a little bit kind of patronising or colonising or whatever word you want to use. If you're only extending hospitality and not able to open yourself up to receiving. Mm.
1: Um, In the last chapter about living together, uh, it's kind of based very much around the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so my question is, having spent a bunch of time on the Sermon on the Mount in this context, uh, how has it changed if you've either read or heard read that, that those passages since uh, working on the book?
4: I don't know. <laughs> 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 Let's write the book. <laughs> <laughs> For me, like, uh, I used to always read the Sermon on the Mount in a very individualistic way. Like, um, and now I kind of read, read it as a a vision statement for the people of God.
3: Mm. You know,
4: um, I'm shocked. I think I used to always read this as a a, uh, sermon about me, Mm. but it's a sermon about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of God and about the people of God, about their ethic of love and welcome and hospitality and neighbour love and enemy love and... This is an extraordinary vision of a new people in the world. So for me, I've just begun to read the Sermon on Mount in a very different way and it found it very liberating. Um, and uh, when I preach on the Sermon on Mount now in church and I say, actually, imagine a people like this. Imagine if we don't have to be these people overnight, but if we're moving in this direction, imagine... It's a very different way of reading the Sermon on than, oh, can I do this? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very different way. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I, the Sermon on the Mount has always been important. I think that's kind of a key passage for many of us Christians. When I um, was doing a PhD program at a professor, Obi Muhammad, he was from India, he was a Janshu uh, priest. And, uh, PhD here is different from um, North America, so we have all this course for two years of residency that we call. So, i was exactly a the world where course. And um, Professor Ali Mohammed will ask us, you know, what does it mean when we pray the Lord's Prayer and let that kingdom come? Because that sermon I'm about is basically we are to build this kingdom and it kind of shows show,
3: you, you know, the peace and all that. If you work that way, then you can build the
2: kingdom of God. So he says, well, do you, what does it mean when you pray the Lord's Prayer and thank you to come? And he asked, and I hate when they ask these tricky questions. You know <laughs> <laughs> I always put my head down. I was very good at that about food program. I was so embarrassed about all my answers. I was put my head down. And other people, brave people, wouldn't give the answers. And he said, No, to everybody. So he goes, you guys don't know what it means when you pray, that thy kingdom come. And we just all about, up, you know, just a bunch of young kids. He says, okay, I'll tell you what it means. And his answer has stayed with me for a long time because that was about 20 years ago. And it's something that stayed with me over 20 years ago. And he says, when you pray, let thy kingdom come. it really means let my kingdom come. So letting my kingdom come. Uh, that is so exactly what the prayer is. Mm-hmm. So part of that sermon about is to matter if it's so how is, what does that mean? We have to let go of, we want so many things. The individualism and all this, the degree and you know, everything about me and as Especially in America, we tend to build our own kingdoms like metaphor. <laughs> we build them, you know, we have our big house, big backyard, the one that thinks, everyone that wants everything big, big cars, big wardrobes, everything big. And we build this king in ourselves. But the story of the month is really about letting that go. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? And it shows you those so, so it's a big challenge for us to live life together. It's not easy. It's not easy. If it was easy, then we'll all be happy. <laughs> you people. Know, like, but it's not. And we know it's not even in our churches. It's not easy living life together. That's why people fight in the church. so many divisions. You know, denom- so many denominations are falling apart. You know, at least you came together, but no, so many generations are falling apart. So we know it's hard to live life together, but if we pray together and think about how we build God's kingdom here on earth, then maybe that
3: will help us, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: That's a pretty wonderful response and a great (laughs) place to stop a wonderful conversation. The book is Healing Our Broken Humanity, Practices for revitalizing the church and renewing the world. You can get it now. Uh, very accessible, very helpful. Uh, yeah, especially if you can find a group to read it in, but even if you can't, it would be wonderful to read alone. Oh,
3: yeah, it's for both. Well. Yes.
1: <laughs> um, and uh, I know if you can't get your own copy in the next little while, there is one at Camden Theological Library, which is here at United Theological College, who are kind enough to let us use a room, so I thought I should spur them out at least once. Very
3: <laughs> good. I
2: mean, this world is warmer than over there, so thank
1: you so much for taking the time. No, you're welcome. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to plug, promote? You know, because I'm sure most people have already in this,
4: like... Uh, is that
3: yeah, yeah. That so we, we should what about. should we of What's Yeah, yeah. What should we be looking yeah.
4: for? Well, it does fit in with this scene mm. and um, the second book of a Ecclesiology, where I'm uh, listening to 25 voices mm. from around the world to help us understand what does it mean to join with God and his mission. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful for what you do and for the way that you create space to hear diverse voices mm-hmm. and pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And I know that your ministry and this podcast has really blessed me and it's blessed Grace and others. And very thankful. So
2: thank you. Yeah, <laughs> what thank you, you very much. And all of and us in your uh, voice of the ordination yeah. process. Because we need more right here. Who welcome and who want to learn from other voices. You don't put that everywhere. You would think people do that, but they don't. So, thank you so much for your ministry around the world, Listen, because I know Americans are listening <laughs> to you and watching. So, just thank you for that and all of us with you and your, with your little baby babies.
1: <laughs> thank you. So, yeah. We had a conversation before about would anything get edited. That part certainly won't be. <laughs> That's
2: <laughs> nice stereotyping yeah. for
3: sure. <laughs> I hope
2: that you will continue to do this. I know you're busy, but um, I hope that you continue to do this and bring different voices so that it could be shared worldwide.
4: And and often, you know, we talk about the importance of um, paying attention to others and diversity and so on. But actually, the most powerful thing often is modelling it. Mm -hmm. And and I think you model it. I think you model attention to others and, and... honouring and valuing others in what you do and modelling it often has a lot more impact than just someone like me teaching it So, yeah. and then you read widely which is good so thank you for
2: your <laughs> interest in our book
1: and I hope you to Minutes. Yes, be sure to pick it up and uh, you know get the Amazon reviews up because that always yes. helps. Five stars yes. and a lovely comment and uh there'll be info on in the show notes to stay connected with Grace and Grail on social media and the like. So uh, give them a follow if you're on there. Thanks for joining us. Thank Thanks you. for joining Thank See you <laughs>